We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. I get it, Zlatan. You're doing us all a favor by gracing us with your presence. But if Major League Soccer is so messed up, why are you still here? Taking shots at Major League Soccer is nothing new. And often the league deserves criticism. MLS isn't perfect. Far from it. But you, Zlatan, you, you can help make it better by offering real solutions. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking Zlatan's complaining. Our Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy's going to talk about Christian Pulisic and his EPL, well, his start to his EPL adventure. Uh, on our Ask Alexi segment, we'll talk about what draws somebody to the game of soccer. And in our back three, we're going to talk about some in-stadium MLS signage, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mr. Mossy, how are you on this? Well, we're recording this on a Tuesday morning. I am good. Last night, I attended the uh, Bruce Springsteen movie. Are you familiar with this? This is the live, uh, well, it's not live, but it's recorded uh, on a live performance type of movie on his Broadway stuff. Is that what you're talking about? No, or is no, no. It's, it's a movie. It's based on a true story about a Pakistani kid growing up in England oh, in the yes, 1980s. Yes, yes. I've heard about this. Who yes, was subjected yes, to yes. prejudice okay. and hardships, uh, but uh, found solace in Bruce Springsteen's lyrics and was inspired by his music. And he's seen him uh, live 150 times, if you can believe that. And he wrote a book about his love for Springsteen, and now it's been turned into a movie, and uh, it's getting rave reviews, and I went to see it last night. And what do you give it out of uh, 1 to 10, 10 being the best? I would give it an 8. It was a little cheesy at times, but I, ultimately I found it enjoyable. If you're any kind of Springsteen fan, I think you should definitely go see it. Are you a Bruce Springsteen fan? Uh, it never really took for me. I wanted to be a Bruce Springsteen fan. And look, I got a lot of respect, wonderful writer and 
talk about a performer, my goodness. But uh, I will go see this just because I like music and I like movies that revolve around music. So I'm, I'm excited. I know what you're talking about because I saw a, uh, uh, an advertisement for it. So I will check it out. But 8 out of 10, that's good. That is a ringing endorsement as far as I'm concerned. So I, I will check that out. I am coming to you once again from the road, the East Coast. Uh, I will be back in Los Angeles next week. I spent the weekend once again in uh, D.C. doing the uh, D.C. United L.A. Galaxy game, which D.C. won 2-1. to one. It was a wonderful, beautiful weekend in our nation's capital yet again. But this was the, the perfect type of temperature. Mossy, I know you're a historian, to walk around that historic city yet again, two weekends in a row. I just had a, a really good time, both from a work experience working with Mark Followell uh, over there and Danielle Slayton, uh, and just from a personal experience. It's just so much fun to go there and to walk around and to see all the, uh, the different history again. Uh, anything else, Mossy, before we, uh, before we light this candle? Shall we light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pot off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. For a player who sees himself as a lion, Zlatan Ibrahimovic sometimes sure sounds a lot like a whiny little pussycat. A quick rehash of Zlatan's public complaints about Major League Soccer, the league, by the way, he chose to play in, and the league that pays him millions of dollars. MLS teammates aren't good enough. MLS opponents aren't good enough. MLS referees aren't good enough. MLS fields aren't good enough. MLS playoff structure isn't good enough. MLS business structure isn't good enough. In short, MLS isn't good enough. I get it, Zlatan. You're doing us all a favor by gracing us with your presence. And to be fair, you've lived up to the hype, my man. You are the biggest star in the league, and I love watching you. And some of what you say, it may indeed be true. But if Major League Soccer is so messed up, why are you still here? Is it to point out that a 24-year-old American professional soccer league isn't Europe? Well, thanks for that. Complaining about problems is easy. Offering realistic solutions, well, that's a little harder. Taking shots at Major League Soccer is nothing new, and often the league deserves criticism. MLS isn't perfect, far from it. Now, I get accused of shilling and carrying water and making excuses for Major League Soccer. I'm not blind to the problems of MLS, but I'm also not blind to the unique realities and challenges that MLS and all professional soccer leagues in the US face. Yes, Slatan, MLS is different. It'll always be different, no matter how successful it becomes. But it'll probably never be good enough for you. But you, Zlatan, you, you can help make it better by offering real solutions. But if all you're really saying to MLS is, be like Europe, then that's like criticizing a pussycat for not being a lion. You're either willfully ignoring reality, or you're just oblivious to it. Okay, so that's my State of the Union for this week. Mossy, what do you think about uh, what Zlatan said? Am I being overly critical or am I being wrong in terms of my reaction to his critique and his consistent critique and criticisms of the league that he plays in? No, I, I mostly agree. It's almost like he wants it both ways. He wants to be an MLS while making it clear that he's too good to be an MLS. And I've, frankly, grown a little bit tired of Latan's act. I know you went back and forth with Miguel Delaney on Twitter over this a few weeks ago, and you 
defended that you still find them to be compelling. And look, I thought Miguel Delaney was a little bit self-righteous in that in that debate. Uh, of course, personalities like Zlatan and Mourinho make the game more interesting. But in the case of those two gentlemen specifically, it's just been like 15 years of hearing them say the same kinds of things. So it has jumped the shark a little bit for me. I don't find Zlatan as interesting anymore as others do. Hmm. I still find him interesting. Uh, I still love the fact that he does talk uh and he talks more and and more interest in a more interesting way than i not no, i will say it than any player in the league uh whether i agree or disagree with it i don't want him to stop talking and he doesn't he doesn't care what i what i have to say about uh anything now this comes on the heels of him criticizing the mls playoff system and we are heading down this final stretch towards the mls playoffs and as you and as all our listeners know in, uh, in the United States and certainly in North America, playoffs are, are a part of what we do when it comes to professional sports. But his point was also that from a mentality standpoint, he has played in leagues that don't have playoffs. And his point was from a training perspective, it because the playoffs aren't there, and I want to make sure I'm clear about this point, because the playoffs aren't there, that the mentality that evolves each and every day for the players is different uh, because, and his point would be, that every game matters because there isn't that possibility of making the playoffs. And, you know, he used, he, he said that the system is shit. <laughs> and not in so many words. He actually, he actually said that. And th- that's where a lot of my disagreement uh, comes from him because it's easy to just say, oh, 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 oh it's shit. It's easy, to, but it's a little more difficult to say why it is and then how you would go about actually fixing it. And that was my point in the, in the State of the Union. And look, we're all guilty of this. And certainly I have, at times, are guilty of, of saying I don't like something or this is wrong or ranting and raving ab- uh, about something or railing against something and not necessarily giving any constructive type of answers on how it's, uh, how it's to be fixed. But when it comes to Zlatan here, do you think, Mossy, that MLS players from a mentality perspective because of the existence of the playoff structure are at a disadvantage and therefore take trainings off, take games off because of this possibility of making the playoffs. Now, I just want to finish this off by saying, before I throw this to you, Mossy, uh, this weekend at halftime of the game, I made the point and I'll make it again here. Los Angeles Galaxy did not make the playoffs last year. Uh, and Zlatan was part of that team. And so for him to say that it's just a cruise control type of mentality and then you make the playoffs and then you can win, absolutely, you can certainly be certainly less than great or mediocre, make the playoffs, squeak in, and then win MLS Cup. That certainly can happen. Uh, But the great teams, the great MLS teams, and Zlatan, you have yet to be on a great MLS team, are able to not only be the best in the regular season, but parlay that into being the best in the postseason. And I will readily admit, that is not easy. So much so that if you look past at the last 23 MLS Cup winners, only seven of them have actually won the Supporters' Shield and then done it in the playoffs. But don't tell me that... What Los Angeles uh, LAFC is doing each and every week and the games that they are playing, they don't mean anything or that they're taking games off. And by the way, approaching games differently is done all over the world in all different leagues. And Zlatan, you have played on some of the best teams in the world, which means that because you have had all the best players around you, you've been able to take games off. 
not, not actually not playing, but the way that you play and the intensity that you bring. You've been able to take, uh, take games off because you knew walking on the field that because of the players that you have, because of the money has been spent, you're going to win 70, 75% of the games because you're playing for one of these super clubs. So I, I take issue with him basically saying that MLS players take games off, take trainings off because of the system that exists right now. The other thing that I made a point of saying is that and maybe this gets to your point where it gets it just gets old after a while constantly complaining about something and complaining about a league that you're involved in a league that as i said is paying you millions and millions of dollars is that the point that you're at where it's just gotten old to constantly hear this yeah but to tell you the truth, I didn't have as big an issue with the playoff stuff. Uh, my bigger issue with, with, was with the Carlos Vela comments, which we can get to in a little bit. But as far as the playoffs, you know, there is a, a legitimate conversation to be had there. We've talked about it on this podcast. When MLS first started in 1996, the owners had a dilemma. Do we model ourselves around other soccer leagues around the world or other sports leagues here in the United States? And they've clearly decided that the concept of playoffs is something so ingrained in the American sports culture that you have to have it. But because there's such a randomness to an individual soccer game, it does raise this question of whether it's the fairest way to crown the best team in your league each year. So, you know, I could do without the expletive at the top, but then what he went on to say after that, uh, look, you can agree or disagree with it, but he's at least trying to make some thoughtful point about the system in MLS. And, and I actually think it lends weight the fact that it comes from a player that's not on the team with the best record in the league. If somebody on LAFC had popped off and said, oh, this system's a joke, then it would have been a bit self-serving because it's like, okay, because you have clearly the league's best record, and if it was just a running table, you'd be coasting to the title right now. Instead, you're going to have to go through this playoff, so now you're complaining about it. But the fact that it comes from a guy, like you said, who didn't even make the playoffs last season, and the Galaxy are where they are this season, shows that it's not a self-serving thing. He's just kind of taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture and just fundamentally has an issue with the way the league is structured. And so... I didn't have as big an issue with this playoff thing as you did, but but yeah, it still falls under the general umbrella of he always has to try to say something controversial and get under people's skin and it just and be sort of outrageous and I don't know. It, it's after 15 years of it, it the, the act has gotten a little bit tired for me. All right, well, a couple of things. Number one, he said when you talk about the playoffs, you just need to make the playoff, win the playoff, and that's it. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. Well, it does matter uh, if you win or lose. And the way that he is framing it, he makes it seem like it's easy. Well, it wasn't easy for his team last year because they didn't uh, they didn't make the playoffs. And while I can have this conversation, and I, I do believe, like you said, that there is a conversation to have and a debate as to whether playoffs – how playoffs affect the regular season. I love playoffs. I love the fact that teams get a second bite at the apple. And you, you, I can hear you saying when you're in your car running right now, but Alexi, that's what he's saying. He's saying that that type of mentality that you do get a second bite at the apple makes players complacent, makes players believe that they can take plays, games, trainings, trainings off. I, I, I understand that, but Having been there and having played in it, I can tell you that that's easy to say, but the reality is that very, very, I, I mean, look, I'm not saying it's never happened, but as I said before, I don't think that teams and players and uh, take off games, take off trainings in this type of system. And as I said, playoffs, playoffs are fun. If, if, if the EPL had playoffs, can you imagine the popularity and I know you're saying well it doesn't it's 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 a single table and uh, the may the best person win by the way if we had that right now 
LAFC would uh, would already the, the season would already be over in LAFC, like you mentioned, because they're doing so well. We would uh, we would give them uh, we would give them that uh, that trophy, Mossy. In in New York, do you think that Commissioner Garber, the commissioner of Major League Soccer, when he hears a player, and, a, and, a, and in particular a player like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, continually criticize the league, do you think that he bristles at this, or is this, this is what they paid for, and this is part of it, and at least people are talking about it, and at least he's bringing up subjects and, and controversy that gets people talking about MLS or do you think that he doesn't because I think that when not just the commissioner but when a lot of people hear it I think they think while it's great and it's wonderful entertainment it's also coming from a place where he doesn't have all of the information and the understanding and the history to understand the realities of the business uh, when it comes to Major League Soccer. So when he says, you know, the playoffs should go away. All right, well, you sit down and say, well, how do you make that up now for the uh, uh, for the ownerships? When you say, okay, the fields aren't good enough. All right, well, here are the realities that teams uh, that put fields in or that have turf fields in have to deal with and all of these different things. It is a constant slog. And that's why I said if his only criticism, if it really just comes down to it should be like Europe, that doesn't that doesn't get us anywhere because it's never going to be like Europe. And guess what? I don't necessarily want it to be like Europe. I want it to be as popular. I want it to be as entertaining. And it doesn't mean you can't have things that happen over in Europe and implement them as they have done and other things that are that are good. And it also doesn't mean that you can't criticize the league. But what do you think got Don Garber sitting uh, uh, up in uh, New York thinking when these types of things happen? Mostly? I think some of his comments have definitely ruffled feathers. And that leads nicely into my Carlos Vela point because I had a major issue with that. It's one thing for him to say, I'm better than Carlos Vela and then go out and score a hat trick and then the story becomes hey he talked the talk but he walked the walk but he actually said the mere fact that I spent my prime years in Europe while Carlos Vela is spending his prime years in MLS makes me better the fact that Carlos Vela is spending his prime years in MLS discredits him as a player which even if you agree with that is such an odd thing for a guy in MLS to say and I found it to be frankly obnoxious and for a league that's so sensitive about Euro snobbery uh, maybe I missed it, but I thought he got like a remarkable pass for that. It didn't seem to trigger as much condemnation as it should have because he then went out and scored a hat trick and the whole story became, hey, he, he, he talked smack, but he backed it up. Yeah, but the type of smack he talked, I thought was really kind of bizarre and out of line to come from a player that's currently in MLS getting paid by that league. Well, it, and it gets back to, I don't want anybody to think that this is a... a a love it or leave it type of uh, type of situation. I I, I am I, I do ask myself, well, why are you here? Keep in mind, he he played a year and then he signed another contract to come back to this league that he continually dumps uh, continually dumps on. So I that that question stands as to if the league sucks so bad, why why do you continue uh, continue playing here? Which is why I guess I'm challenging him to come up with some viable solutions to the criticisms that he have. And, when, and you know, that's going to require work. That's going to require getting down and dirty and understanding a lot of the realities on the ground that the league has faced, faces now, and continues to face. And the unique realities that all the different clubs face when they're trying to build a soccer team and a soccer league. And I'm not sure he's willing, uh, he's willing to do that, but I would love to see him because, as you mentioned, his voice matters. 
Nobody's debating whether he is one of the greatest players ever to play the game. Absolutely, he's one of the greatest players ever to uh, play the game. And think if you were able to harness that power and harness uh, that voice and that platform for, to do good rather than just saying you just need to change, you just need to be like Europe, to do some actual things. That would be wonderful. I don't think that that's ever going to happen because I don't think that Zlatan necessarily thinks or wants to think about the nitty-gritty and the, and the details and the realities and at times the sobering ra- reality of the league that he plays in. But if he did, I think, it, uh, I think it would be wonderful. And I'll just finish it here. As I said, he's the best player in the league. Uh, arguably, we can argue about who's the best player in the league. But look, for me, I love watching him for what he does on the field and what he does off the field. He is a bigger-than-life type of personality. And I, that's one of the reasons why I watch sports. It's one of the reasons why I love sports. It doesn't mean I have to agree with him. It doesn't mean I can't see him as a villain. It doesn't mean I can't shake my head at him. But I don't want him to go away. I don't want him to stop doing what he's doing. And uh, as I said before, he's not listening to me. He doesn't care what, what, what I have to say about, uh, uh, say about this subject. But our job is to talk about the things that happen on and off the field when it comes uh, to our game. And because he has such power, because he is such a huge name, and because he has such a wonderful platform, when he says these things, they are going to resonate a whole lot more than anybody else out there. And I think it is fair, and I think it's important for when he says those things, that he be held accountable, that he be questioned about him, and that this debate ensues. And I hope it does. Agree, disagree, you know, it doesn't really matter, as I say all the time. Let us know how you feel. Anything more before we uh, move on, Hermosi? Let me just say, the bleep button's going to get a workout during that segment, Uh, the language there. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, for the record, I do not think that MLS is sh nor do I believe that the MLS system is shit. All right, moving on. <laughs> Mossy makes the case. All right, it's time again for the Mossy makes the case segment. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case is that Christian Pulisic's move to Chelsea is making some American fans confront issues of club versus country. Three years ago, Liverpool faced Borussia Dortmund in the Europa League, and I was co-hosting a radio program at the time. The producer of said show was an American Liverpool fan, and I asked him how he would feel if Pulisic scored a goal that sent Dortmund through at the expense of Liverpool, and he was not sure how to answer. And I thought about that again on Sunday. I went to a pub, the Old Kingshead in Santa Monica, to take in the Manchester United-Chelsea game, and it was filled with American Man United fans all wearing their jerseys and rooting on their beloved Red Devils, at least until Christian Pulisic checked into the game. And then you could sense the confliction every time he touched the ball. It was palpable. They did not know how to react. Over the last decade or so, it's become the trendy thing in this country to adopt a big Premier League club as your favorite team. And if you, sen- if you sense the disdain in my voice, I find this phenomenon rather annoying. And while we had that one season of Clint Dempsey at Tottenham, this was the first time where you've had an American be a mega signing at one of the big English clubs. And in talking to different folks about how they're going to handle that, I've gotten a lot of, I hope he plays well in the other 36 games, just not against my team, or uh, I hope he plays well against us as long as we win. So Americans that root for other big English clubs uh, that are not Chelsea are having to figure out these compromises over the next nine months and really under the coming for the coming years. Uh, ultimately, I don't think this is that big a deal, but I just find it to be an amusing subplot of this whole Pulisic-Chelsea story. Oh, my goodness, Mossy. My head is exploding here. So many questions. Okay, first and foremost, 
why do you find it uh why 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 do you find it's so disturbing um and why are you such a snob uh, and an elitist when it comes to somebody who sees a team a brand and it and appeals to them it speaks to them and they want to follow it why why is that a problem even epl or any 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 place else for that matter i don't understand that yeah, some of the explanations you get for how they adopted those teams uh, feel a little flimsy to me. I mean, let me ask you this. I know you bristle at this concept of fan authenticity, but if you were at that bar with me on Sunday and you saw some of these Americans jeering Pulisic and maybe rooting against them, and then you ask them afterwards, how long have you been a Man United fan? And they tell you, eh, three or four years. I like playing with them on FIFA, so I adopted them as my team. Would you look at that and be like, come on, man, you're not really a Man United fan country has to trump club that you should be rooting for Pulisic to do well, or they're allowed to root for whoever they want. And who am I to uh, take umbrage with that? Mossy, I am a man of the people, all right? <laughs> and I, I would never hope to judge somebody's fandom based on time spent or nationality or birthplace or language or anything else for that matter. If you like a team, you like a team. Whether you liked it yesterday, it really doesn't matter to me. When it comes to Christian Pulisic, though, it warmed the cockles of my redheaded American heart to watch the coverage this weekend. You know, our, our friends and colleagues over at, uh, at NBC do and have done a wonderful job. And we talked about this before in, in, the, in the strategy that they took from the start of really being authentic and genuine and mirroring the type of coverage that exists and has existed uh, over, over in England. And that's appealing to a, a fan base either that's expats and, and has a, a long history or, like you mentioned, to people that are just coming to it and they view that as genuine and, and, and authentic. But to see them, pander is not a good word, but I'm going to use it anyway, pander to the obvious <laughs> situation of Christian Pulisic and his first uh, weekend and first game with Chelsea it was wonderful to see because I know there was probably some consternation and kudos to the producers and the people behind the scenes that recognized that you play the hits and regardless of the people, the tried and true folks that have been around and EPL fans, when you have a player like Christian Pulisic, an American, that's going to bring a whole lot more people into the tent and you make sure that you keep, uh, that you keep hitting it. And it was the absolute right thing to do from a business, a television, a production standpoint. They did it well. I'm sure sometimes our colleagues over there bit their lip and, and, uh, and bristled a little bit about having to focus so much on Christian Pulisic, but I thought they did a really good, uh, a really good job. That he didn't start was was a bummer, but this push and pull and this struggle that you talked about that people have with Christian Pulisic, you're, so you're saying that country should trump club, and therefore, if and when Christian Pulisic is on the field, even if you are a, a Liverpool fan or an Arsenal fan or something like uh, something else, you should still want for him to do well, even though he may be playing for your biggest rival. It's a tricky one because, I mean, Pulisic, you know, if you're an, uh, an American, you've been able to root for the U.S. national team, obviously, and then adopt a big Premier League club. And those two things have generally existed in different ecosystems, so there's no conflict there. But it is in the best interest of the U.S. national team in the coming years for Pulisic to do really well at Chelsea. 
But what if Pulisic doing really well at Chelsea means him scoring goals against your favorite club or him helping Chelsea beat you or him helping Chelsea win trophies at your expense or denying you top four and titles and things of that nature? It, you know, there's a potential to get a little bit <laughs> dicey there of how you're sort of going to juggle that your interest in, in your favorite club and, and obviously the U.S. national team. So, you know, I don't know. I, there's no obviously no right or wrong answer there. But I just thought it was it was funny to be at that bar and look at those Man United fans. And like I said, you could sense the conflict when it was any other Chelsea player that had the ball, boy, they wanted him to f- fall flat on his face. And then when Pulisic gets it, it's like, eh, I'm not really sure what I want to happen here. You know, I'm an American. It wouldn't be the worst thing if Pulisic <laughs> scored a nice goal. And they're kind of, but, you know, on the NBC thing, you kind of, I was going to go there next. So you, you kind of anticipated where I was going. It was so fascinating to me. Well, because, hold on, hold on. Before you go, hold on. Before yeah. you go, before you go there, just because uh, I'm going to blow your mind one more time. You're, you're, uh, you're snobby and elitist mind here <laughs> one more time. I also have no problem if, you are a fan of, I don't know, Liverpool or something like that. And then Christian Pulisic goes and signs and, and is playing for Chelsea. If you become a Chelsea fan, we, no, look, we talk each and every day about this game. And most of the talk is around personalities and the stars and the personalities and the individual and the brand of those individuals. That has become what our, what our sport is, much more so than maybe it has in the past, although you can certainly argue that, that sports has always been and will always be about the, individual, uh, about the individual players. So if you are a Christian Pulisic fan, and that supersedes your affiliation, however long or, or short it may be, with another EPL team, and you now become a Chelsea fan because Christian Pulisic is there, you don't apologize to anyone. And I got your back on this. <laughs> and you, you shout it from the rooftops that... I go where Christian Pulisic goes. All right, anyway, go ahead about the uh, the broadcast over there in NBC. It's just funny because they clearly thought he was going to start the game. He was in all the projected lineups, and so they had all this Pulisic stuff prepared, all these warm-up shots of him, chats around him. They had that picture of him as a 7-year-old with his dad at, outside Old Trafford in a game back in 2005. And, you know, we've been in the situation at Fox. The lineup comes out. He's not starting. Uh-oh, what do you do? And they decided to go ahead with the Pulisic content, so it did mean they devoted a, a fair share of their pregame to a player that wasn't starting. And then, like you said, he talked about him after the game when if you remove the fact that he's American, he was a completely irrelevant part of the story of that game, but they still took the time out to analyze his performance. And so, yeah, it was interesting them being confronted with that choice. And they've been kind of the darlings of the soccer media in this country, and rightly so. They do an outstanding job covering the Premier League. And it was it was interesting to see them come under a little bit of criticism for that. You know, the likes of World Soccer Talk and others tweeted, you know, hey, like, don't go down the Fox path of, like, ramming the American thing down our throats. You know, people are tuning in to watch the Premier League and they can't lose sight of what's made him great and so and then other people were arguing your point of view no what are you talking about it's the United States you got to highlight the American and it was just like a funny debate back and forth on Twitter to follow so I do think it's going to be another interesting subplot of this whole Pulisic thing to follow how kind of NBC covers him well from a practical standpoint as you mentioned he didn't start is this worrying is this a problem is this trouble for Christian Pulisic that he didn't start in this game obviously they got crushed and so it might be there might be bigger problems than whether Christian Pulisic starts or doesn't. And maybe it was good that he didn't start and wasn't associated with at least the starting part of that game. Although he was on the field when they started uh, when they started taking taking goals. Do you think ultimately Christian Pulisic is going to be a starter going forward? I I, I do. I hope so. I thought it was a shocking decision for him to not start this game. 
and you know, I've heard all the explanations and none of them convinced me. There are still people that cling to this notion that there's this like incredible learning curve when you go to England as if the style of football there is so different than everywhere else. And I find that to be so outdated. You see new signings all the time coming from different leagues that step right in and do well right away. And this is a guy that's been playing in another major European league. He spent the last three years with Dortmund in the Bundesliga. We've seen him start games against the likes of Bayern and Real Madrid in the Champions League. He was your mega signing. You paid 65 million euros for him. He had a great preseason. He was healthy. He was fresh. And then you don't start him. And you look at that lineup, but it's not like, you know, you had Messi and Ronaldo starting at him. It was Mason Mount and Ross Barkley. So I, I thought that was a shocking decision by Lampard. To me, Pulisic should have started that game. And, you know, as you mentioned, the result could sort of play in his, in his favor of him starting subsequent games. I, I hope he works his way into that lineup fairly quickly. Because looking at that Chelsea team, I, I mean, I, I just don't see any reason why he wouldn't be a starter. Oh, Mossy, I love it uh, when I agree with you. You might be an elitist and a snob uh, when it comes to a lot of things, but I love when you say something uh, that's just so on point. And it absolutely is. It drives me nuts. I mean, the, the, the narrative out there was that uh, it was as if Christian Pulisic was playing for some beer league in Scranton or, or Hershey, PA, and had just had just come over, and that somehow the EPL plays with 12 players uh, on each team and two balls, and he just needs to figure it, figure it all out. This this was a guy who was who was coming from one of the elite super clubs of the world, uh, had starred there, had done it from a young age. He's not going to get phased or anything like that by the crowd or by the moment or by the uh, the motion uh, or the emotion of the moment or anything like that. I thought that was that was interesting to see. Well, this is you know this is Frank protecting him and this is you know making sure that you just kind of give him uh, a little bit here and a little taste here. Come on, man, put him in the game, start him in the game. He's as good as anybody that you got. And certainly after the uh, the result, we'll see if that changes going forward. What Frank Lampard is going to do as the uh, head coach, he, like I said, he might have some bigger problems on his hand than uh, than dealing with the Christian Pulisic uh, situation. Anything else uh, on uh, on your day at the bar and uh, watching EPL and, and as it applies to Christian Pulisic? Well, you know, we'll end on this. Speaking of people attending bars to watch this Manchester United-Chelsea game, our producer Alex Dowd, a, a, a diehard Chelsea fan, uh, did attend. There's this uh, Chelsea bar near where we work. Uh, what's the name of it again? Stalking Horse, yes. I actually went there once with him last season. I saw a great Chelsea-Liverpool game where Chelsea were up 1-0 late and Daniel Sturridge scored this incredible equalizer from long distance. But yeah, according to Alex, it was it was a, a very somber mood there. I mean, how do you like to be Alex Dowd? You wait two months to watch your favorite team play. You're all excited. It's the new season. You go there, round up those bozo friends of yours, the kid that went to Penn State that I met once, and then you have to watch that and, and, and stumble out of there and... <laughs> It's a rough one, huh? Oh, it's a it's rough, man. But they can only go up, right? I mean, I hope they can only go up. Well, yeah. we'll see. We'll see if they go up. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for the uh, hashtag Ask Alexi segment. You use that uh, hashtag of Ask Alexi on all the social media platforms out there. Ask us a question, send us a comment, and then we pick out some of the best of them uh, as we have done for this week. Mossy, what do the people want to know or say this week in our Ask Alexi segment? First up, at J underscore any eight. Thoughts on the firing of Mike Petke? Okay, so for those that don't know, Mike Petke, the head coach of uh, Real Salt Lake, uh, was uh, fired a couple of days ago. He was in the midst of serving a, what was it, a two-week suspension, a $25,000 fine for using inappropriate language 
directed at a referee, not just verbally, but even even written. Uh, he lost his mind. If anybody has followed Mike Pecky, he is an emotional and passionate man. Uh, but I think it would not surprise anybody that follows Mike Pecky to know that at times he lets that emotion and that passion out, and sometimes it can get the best of him. It certainly did uh, here. Uh, we know about the uh, the crackdown when it comes to the uh, the chant in the stadium and the word that uh, that is used and you know he has no one to blame but himself uh, I did not think this was going to happen I thought that the fine and the requirement uh, of going to uh, what was it sensitivity training and and uh, and the suspension that he had since it, it had already been he was already well into it and was coming back from that. I thought that was going to be it. It seems a little strange to do it after he had already served all of this, uh, this punishment that they levied out to begin with. But uh, this is, you know, this is the, the time that we live in. And certainly when it comes to certain words, what your thoughts about them were uh, or are right now, you got to be able to evolve and you have to be able to change. And this isn't this is nothing in terms of coming out of left field for him or anybody else out there. And I think he recognizes that he, uh, you know, he messed up a good thing. And he did it in a way that deserved to be punished. And I don't think it, as I said, is, it will be surprising to many people necessarily that this action was taken. When it was taken, I think, is where the surprise, uh, the surprise comes. And I will be really interested to see what happens with uh, with Mike Pecky because this is a guy who has had success now at multiple teams in Major League Soccer with the New York Red Bulls uh, and with Real Salt Lake. He is a, in full disclosure, he is a friend of mine. I don't think that he is a, uh, a homophobe uh, or that he goes out of his way either publicly or privately to offend anyone. But he, like all of us, is responsible for his words and the choices that he makes, especially in this type of uh, public setting. And he's a big boy. And I think he is going to not take this punishment laying down. I think he will have a side of the story that he will want out there. It'll be interesting if, if and when we do hear that. But you know, this is this is the country that we live in. This is the world that we live in. And as I said before, it is and shouldn't be a surprise to anybody uh, that that is not tolerated. It's not tolerated by the team. It's not tolerated by the league. Uh, it's not tolerated by anybody here. And in order to really affect change, those that do have positions of leadership, those that do have a platform, uh, have to you know, constantly be held accountable, whether it's me, whether it's Mike Pecky, whether it's you, Mossy, whether it's anybody. We are responsible for the words that we, uh, uh, that we use, and, uh, and I get that. And it's a, it's a pity that it, happen, that it happened to him, but as I said before, he created the situation, and if he's uh, going to blame anybody, he has only himself to blame. And I think he, well, I don't know, but I, I, I'm assuming that he, uh, that he understands that. All right, what else? Uh, next up, at MNJDG. When you were a kid, what first drew you to the sport of soccer? What about it made it better, more fun than other sports? Interesting question. So when I was growing up, as those of you that have listened uh, know that I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, and uh, I grew up also in uh, Athens, Greece, so kind of going back and forth when I was really young. But most of my soccer upbringing was in, uh, in Detroit. I looked at soccer as a way of expression. Uh, and in a unique way of expression, unlike any other sport that I had played, or, or to be quite honest, any other thing that I did in my life, other than maybe music. But 
the ability to express yourself on a soccer field is unique in that you are left to your own devices for the most part. Yes, there is a, a structure and there are laws and all that, but you know, there's no timeouts. Yes, there are set plays, but the coach kind of gives you an idea of what he or she wants you to do, and then you go out there and you make the decisions on your own. And to have that type of autonomy in a situation like that really drew me uh, drew me to it. The other aspect of it, and I've talked about this before, is the international aspect of it. And while I was you know, knee-deep in my suburban 80s MTV slurpy type of existence, there was the recognition, and it came through soccer, that I was part of the world. I was playing a sport that the world played. And I thought that that was, that was, that was cool. Um, and I thought that that was something that I wanted to be uh, a part of. And so the ability to figure it out by myself uh, on the field, obviously within a team setting, and then the understanding and the recognition that there's another 10, 11-year-old on the other side of the world that's kicking a ball in his or her driveway or sidewalk uh, or playing down on a, uh, on a uh, dirt field. That really resonated with me. And that's why I, I got into it. And then the final thing I'll say is that it's not a spoon-fed fast food type of game, either playing it or watching it. It has nuance. It is subjective. There are gray areas of it. It you know, I often say that life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair, and it really does mirror life. And I loved that aspect of the goal, while important, and the, I guess, the ultimate moment in the game is it's, it's only one part of the game. And there are all these other little moments that where a ball doesn't necessarily go into a net or through a hoop uh, or, or through posts or anything like that, and yet it can still be as satisfactory and as joyous as that final beautiful moment of putting it in the goal. So that all of those things combined made it the sport for me. There, it wasn't necessarily cool when I grew up to be a soccer person, uh, or but it became more cool as you went along. And now it's it's much it's much cooler. We were we weren't necessarily shunned but we were ignored as soccer people uh, growing up. And so sometimes you take that ownership and it's that badge of honor that comes. It happens a lot of times with different cliques and, and different groups, especially in high school and stuff like that. And so the soccer people, we became our own group and we protected each other and, and we protected the game. And I, I, en I enjoyed that. It's, I'm not saying I was getting picked on or anything, or anything like that, but being a soccer player and being a soccer person, especially in the 70s and 80s in the United States, was very, very different. It was a very different type of thing to attach yourself to. And uh, I'm glad that I did it, and I'm glad that it spoke to me. And I know if you're listening right now, in one way or another, uh, this game has spoken to you. And that's a, that, that's a cool thing to have in your life because there's not a lot of things in life necessarily that do that. Do that. And when they do, you've got to grab a hold of them. And I was really fortunate to be able to see that and recognize that this was something that was going to last and hopefully last for the rest of my life. All right, what else? You're, you're so right about the international aspect of it. I've never told this story on the podcast. Let me do it quickly. In the awesome. summer of 2018, uh, we were in Moscow covering the Men's World Cup. And during one of our days off, I took a day trip to St. Petersburg and I went to the Hermitage Museum. 
And when I go to art museums, I like to take pictures of the paintings. And my phone died, which I was very upset about. I was running around trying to find somebody that had a charger I could borrow, and I couldn't find anybody. And it was like, oh, my God, that's going to ruin this great day. And I kind of wandered outside the Hermitage, and I saw this, like, scary-looking Russian guy who had in his hand a portable charger. And I walked over to him, and I asked if I could use it. And he gave me this look of, like, are you kidding me? I don't even know you. Of course not. And so that should have been that. Uh, but I happened to notice that he was wearing a Zenit T-shirt. And I said to him, are you a Zenit fan? He said, yeah, you know, I'm here with Fox Sports, uh, actually covering the, the World Cup. And we got to talking about soccer and specifically Zenit. And we started talking about the current team. Roberto Mancini had just left a Zenit manager to take over Italy, and he gave me his thoughts on that. We talked about the current players, guys like uh, Leandro Paredes, who's now at PSG, and, and the striker, Zuba. We talked about former Zenit players, uh, Hulk, Axel Witzo, or Chavin. And we got off on this, like, 15, 20-minute conversation about Zenit, and it completely broke the ice. And the guy looked at me and said, you know what, give me your phone. And he plugged it in. He recharged it for me. I went back into the Armitage, had a great day. And ever since that encounter, I've sort of thought about, like, the international aspect of soccer and how it can unite people like there's literally nothing else in that moment that could have bonded me to that guy and could have like salvaged that situation and yet like it, it was great so I, I i'm with you I, I love the whole global aspect of the sport for sure and i bet that there are people that are listening to this right now that, that we all have these soccer stories that even though you couldn't see on the surface any type of connection once that soccer thing happens and whether it's playing it or talking about it and that connection that connection is made uh, that's that's <laughs> that's the best thing so i think we all we all have those anything else uh, well, and on this, this, by the way, is a, a new Alex Dowd wrinkle. He wants to end the Ask Alexi segment always with kind of a off-the-wall, funny pop culture question. Last week we did uh, favorite uh, Hall & Oates song, and this one, right. this week we're going with this. At Corvette Jr., uh, preferred movie series, Die Hard or Lethal Weapon? Ooh, ooh, that's good. That is good. Um, okay, Corvette Jr., I am going to say... Die Hard, and I will tell you why. Number one, I like anti-heroes, and I think Bruce Willis is much more of that type of character and the reluctant type of hero. So I think that was that, that's one. Two, I believe that it had more humor. Now, they both had humor, but I, I enjoyed the humor more from a Bruce Willis perspective and from a, a movie perspective throughout Die Hard. I thought the humor was better. And number three, I think that you'd be hard-pressed to find a better villain in, in much of movie history. That type of character and villain resonated much more so than in the Lethal Weapon series. And uh, look, I love them both, and I've watched, I've watched them both, but I have to pick. Those are the reasons why I would come down on the Die Hard side. You, Mossy? Die Hard. I agree. More iconic and, and, and more important, frankly. You know, people talk about how over the last 30 years or so, uh, Die Hard has become sort of a template for movies where so many movies, the pitch is, this is Die Hard on skates. This is Die Hard at an amusement park. You know what I mean? It's, it's always like sort of, if you can connect something to Die Hard, it, it's somehow sort of like an easy way to explain like what you're going for in terms of a movie concept. It just has a... a a bigger, bigger impact. It's a, I think it's a more transcendent movie franchise. 
but love the Lethal Weapon more, movies. More quotable, more quotable, more. Uh, it's more quotable too, I think, than uh, than Lethal Weapon. You know, I love them both. Like you said. All right, good question there. Good question there. All right, anything else? Are we done with uh, Ask Alexi? Uh, that is it. Okay, well, going forward, as I said, use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on social media, and who knows, David Mossy may be reading your question uh, that has to do with Die Hard or any other movie out there uh, or anything uh, soccer-related going forward. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our Back Three segment. We look at some big stories or games or moments. Uh, What's in our Back Three this week, Mossy? We'll start in MLS. Uh, you know, we talked about the whole Alejandro Bedoya thing last week. And again, MLS dealing with issues of this really political climate that we're in. I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, not to get too deep into this because it's a evolving type of story. You mentioned Alejandro Bedoya last week. We talked about it on the pod, him talking about and demanding and end, end gun violence. And we see this week uh, situations happening uh, in Atlanta where supporters were asked to leave, flags were confiscated, and not to get too much into the weeds and into the nitty-gritty of this, because as I said, it's still a story that's evolving. I I talked to the league today, and we're still trying to get some information about it, but the the bigger picture is, and and, and, one of the, the bigger talking points is, as MLS, as the sport continues to evolve and to grow, you're going to deal with bigger and bigger crowds. You're going to deal with newer type of situations that you haven't dealt with in the past. And so when it comes to, first off, just just expression from a supporter's standpoint, and this isn't you know me standing up for MLS, the reality is that when you put it up against other sports, the fact that we have you know, organized supporters groups, organized supporters sections, standing sections, and TIFO, organized TIFO, uh, on a consistent basis, that already puts us in a unique position alone relative to other sports. And that MLS and all professional soccer leagues in the United States allow these types of things to happen, that's a good thing because that's part of the atmosphere. That's what, that's what we want. But as MLS grows, and certainly in the political climate that we are in right now, where everything is so politically charged, you know, they're going to be dealing with things as to what is political. And they came down last week, and by not acting and not punishing and not doing anything to Alejandro Bedoya, I think that there was the implied type of feeling that that was, that was not political. That was saying something that everybody can get behind, and it wasn't taking sides, and that's certainly the where, where I came at it from, and since he wasn't punished, I, I'm assuming that's what, how MLS looked at it. But as you, get, as you get going, people are going to use the opportunity to express beliefs, and at times people may believe that it's not political, and yet there's so many different connections to things that, that can be associated with a you know a side of the political spectrum or a group or historical uh, type of things and so i think mls is really wary about precedent and really worried to be quite honest with you of devaluing the experience for everybody in that stadium because and i said this last week while while it is an escape to go to a professional sports event it is not a fantasy but understanding that there are a lot of people that go to these events and they don't want to have to deal with it or have it shoved in their face on a consistent basis uh, with one side or the other or anything type of that, that, is, that is political. And so I think this is just going to continue on as a case-by-case basis, but it's going to be something to watch. And this is, look, 
the flag things and, and whether it's right or whether it's wrong or whether you should be kicked out or whether the flag should be prohibited or confiscated, that's all something that we're going to talk about. But this is the most important thing. MLS, like every league and like every sport, should make sure that they're doing the things to make sure that you have a safe environment. This is a sporting event. Going to this sporting event should be fun. It should be entertaining. But most importantly, it should be safe. And that is on the leagues and the stadiums to make sure that they do that. And this is what I fear that if this continues on and people start taking sides and people get militant about the situation and people get bent out of shape, that there's going to be something that's going to happen physically. And that's the last thing that anybody wants to see, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum or anything. I don't think anybody wants to see that. And yet in this current climate, when people can take things different ways and it can be misconstrued or the perception of something, you have to take into account somebody's perception of something because if that is instrumental in inflaming and igniting what is already a very passionate and emotional type of situation, that's, that's not something that you want to do. And it would break my heart because MLS has done a really good job of not having that infect the league. It would break my heart, and, and, and not just US, MLS, but I think all leagues in the U.S. and all soccer leagues in the U.S. and North America have done a really good job of keeping that out. It would break my heart if that suddenly happened because people took something the wrong way or people demanded to have uh, this presence and people wanted to have their voice heard in the form of a flag or anything else that they are doing, that could be problematic. And I think that MLS is just really, really worried about that uh, going on right now. We'll continue to talk about this because I think it's, it's, not going to, uh, it's not going to stop. And there are people out there that are, that are angry and feel that MLS is denying what they feel is a right to, to say what they want, is a right to do things, things that they don't feel are political. I will leave you with this, though, when I'm talking about this subject. We are all guests in these stadiums that we go to. And I love, I love the ownership that sports fans, and I love the ownership in particular of soccer and, and MLS fans have taken of their team and the brand and what it represents on and off the field. But there also seems to be at times a sense of entitlement as to what you are, what you deserve and what you, what you should get and what you are due. We are all guests in the stadiums. And we want to make sure, at least I want to make sure as a guest, that I am contributing in a good way to the experience that people are having so that they come back again. And in no way do I ever want to be doing something, however strongly I may feel about the sentiment that I am expressing, that I am doing something that is going to drive people away or, God forbid, do something that is going to ignite any type of physical confrontation or violence in the, in the, in the stadiums. So that's my take on uh, what's going on right now. But as I said, this is a continuing and evolving story that we don't have all the answers to, and I'll be interested to see how this uh, continues on. All right, what else, Mossy? Next up, the Premier League campaign got underway this past weekend, which meant the debut of VAR in the Premier League. And predictably, there was a lot of negative reaction, particularly when it came to offsides, which is quickly becoming the most controversial aspect of VAR. A story today that IFAB is actually going to review uh, how these offside situations are being interpreted by VAR. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but uh, I know you do as well. You've been talking to people on Twitter about it. I'll let you go first. Your overall feelings about VAR in the Premier League this weekend and, and, and some of the controversies that seem to have arisen because of it. 
I feel as if I'm a time traveler because of this. It actually made me giddy. And it, it, it once again warmed the cockles of my redheaded heart to see the level of angst and consternation come out from the implementation of VAR in the EPL. And yet, when I'm seeing the tweets, when I am reading the think pieces and the articles out there, when I, when I am seeing the heads of the pundits on television explode, it's as if I'm just reliving something. Because we've done all of this. We have gone through all of these different emotions and we have already come out the other side. And yet we know it, it doesn't count and it doesn't matter until the English do it. That's a, that's, <laughs> that, that's a truism out there. And so they're going through things that we have all gone, uh, gone through uh, a long time ago because we saw around the corner and we implemented, uh, implemented VAR. And the national type, as I said, of angst that is out there in terms of how this is ruining the game. It was wonderful. It was wonderful, Mossy. Now, specifically about the offside, this is, you know, I've said this before. Offside, okay, is not subjective, all right? You are either onside or you are offside. You cannot be a little pregnant. And yet the agitation of so many that these calls were made where it was a, a millimeter here or a millimeter there. Yeah, because we have the technology to actually see whether the person was onside or offside. And if you don't like it, then you still have to, then you have to change the law and you have to find a definition now of what is that cushion area. And by the way, even if you have that cushion area, you say, okay, it can only be within a yard. Well, we're still going to, we're just going to move it to the end of that cushion area where we'll be looking at millimeters. So I, I, that one, I just, I don't get. And the speed and the swiftness in which this has gone up the chain now because uh, of the implementation in the EPL just, just makes, uh, it just makes me, it makes me laugh. And I'll say this before I throw it over to you, Mossy. There's no going back. That VAR train left the station a long time ago. And so you can't say, yeah, but, you know, back, back when without VAR. No, it doesn't matter. Because if you go back, it's now with the knowledge that VAR exists. It's now with the knowledge that technology exists. And you cannot put that genie back into the bottle. Absolutely, absolutely not. Because the first thing that you do is uh, on TV is we're going to show, we're going to show the video that shows you that that player was onside or wasn't offside, even by a millimeter. And it's going to show you that we have the technology to get what in, in the old days would have been a wrong call right. And so I'll be interested to see how this continues on. Mossy, your take. Yeah, I mean, in the year 2019, to have the technology to correct obvious mistakes like Maradona, hand of God goals, and not do it would be wrong in my opinion. So the game needs some form of video replay. Every other sport has it. But what every other sport also has is some sort of limit on how often you can use it. In the NFL, coaches only get X amount of challenges. So there's sort of an acknowledgement that it's not about getting every call right. It's a tool to have to be used judiciously, but you don't want it to disrupt the flow of the game too much. So I just think soccer 
is still in that phase of trying to figure out that balance. It's still a relatively new thing. It's only been around for a couple of years. And so trying to figure out uh, how much VAR is appropriate and what situations you want to use it. And so we're still in that kind of trial and error period, but it's wor worth sticking with it because if you get that balance right, it's a net positive for the game. So I, I agree with you. Um, it, it, we're not going back. At this point, we might as well just concentrate on trying to make it the best system possible. And it's interesting to me that when it comes to a ball clearing the goal line, Everybody seems to accept the black and white nature of that and, and the fact that we're at the mercy of technology. The Premier League title last season was essentially decided by a play in the Manchester City-Liverpool game in which Liverpool thought they had scored a goal, but goal line technology said no. It was 11 millimeters away from being a goal. And in the months since then, Liverpool fans have bemoaned the fact that they were so close. But nobody's argued it should have been a goal. Goal line technology said no, so case closed. We move on. And offside, in theory, is supposed to work that same way. But for whatever reason, everybody from fans, uh, media, players, coaches, just fundamentally do not buy into that black and white nature of offside. Now, my father uh, called me after that West Ham-Manchester City game and made this point to me. And actually, when I went on Twitter uh, that night, a lot of people were making this point, too. It's getting a lot of traction. So let me throw this out to you. With offside, you're still relying on a human being to freeze the play at just the right moment. And they're calling these so tight that like three-tenths of a second either way could make the difference between a guy being on or off. And you brought in a different referee. He might have freezed it three-tenths of a second earlier. And all of a sudden, Raheem Sterling is onside. So do you think that should take it out of the realm of being a black and white thing, that you're fundamentally, you're trying to take something that's fundamentally inexact and trying to make it exact. Does that argument, uh, do you have any sympathy for that argument? No, but human beings are the ones that ultimately are the ones that create and manufacture the machines that then make, uh, make judgments. We can go back and back and back and back and forth. So what you're arguing uh, right now is that the person actually put the, uh, put the line there. But... But what you're not arguing is whether the person is offside. I just want to make sure that there's a, there's, there's a distinction there. I understand what your father's saying, and, I, and this was a point that was, that was made uh, over the weekend. But we put these people in charge of making these decisions, even in this situation of making that line. And then that line is the law. That line is the arbiter, okay? And yes, it was made by a human being. But when that line is made, it's not subjective. It is either on or off. Okay. Now, when that same person makes a decision as to whether it was a foul or not, there's no line or anything like that. That's when it's subjective. Yes, yes, the, the, the call stands because we put these people in the position to make it, but that's not subjective. So that's, that's the difference in terms of, of the, way that the, the way that I see that. That a person ultimately, yes, is putting that line, fine. But that's, those are the people that we put in charge to do that line. And then... For, and so for people that don't know there, the clear and obvious uh, phrase that everybody throws out, that doesn't apply to offside. But a lot of people want it to apply to offside. Fine. But now you have to define what clear and obvious is. Mossy, what is clear and obvious to you? No, you're right. You get into a whole gray area there too. Now, let me ask you this. Yeah. Even if you accept the fact that the referee in that, and I keep going back to that uh, West Ham City play because I have to admit, in 30 years of watching football, that might be the tightest offside call I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, if, if you go back to that play, even if you accept the fact that the referee stopped it at just the right time, and technically if you stared at it long enough, Raheem Sterling was a millimeter offside. Do you have any sympathy for the argument that if you have to freeze it like that and stare at it for five minutes and a guy is uh, one millimeter offside, 
I'm 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 gonna try to avoid using the phrase spirit of the rule because I I just think that sounds like such a goofy phrase that can be easily mocked. But you know where I'm going with this that he, they they were effectively yeah. level in that play. That if if you're doing that, then you're you're over officiating the game. If it's something where you have to stop it and stare at it for five minutes and and the guy is like a millimeter offside, that there's just something where you're just fundamentally <laughs> over officiating the game. There does that does that no, argument? No, Mossy, what are you talking th- about? That, that argument no, doesn't. He's a millimeter offside. So that, no, I, bottom I line, no, that I, you were sitting there no watching sympathy. that. No. You were sitting there watching that game as a neutral like I was, and although I wasn't totally neutral because it was Gabriel Jesus that got denied a goal, so that made me upset, but you had no issue with that goal being ruled out. That that didn't hit you funny. Like That sat, that you, that sat well with you, that city goal being ruled out for a VA, in a, after a VAR review? No, I have no issue at all that that happened. It, because, you know, it goes back to you, you, you can't be a little pregnant. Either, either they're offside or they're not. And once again, you put that person in that position to make the call. And the other thing is, and this is where VAR, we've had this conversation, and now it just re, it's rehashed because it's happening in EPL. You know, people thought, and I even thought at a certain point, that it was going to take out the, the wonderful subjective nature of our game when it comes to arguing and debating calls and opinion. And it hasn't. We're still arguing. We're just arguing over calls that are made by much more informed human beings. But we're still arguing over human decisions and therefore potential human error. That's not, that's not going to go away. I just, I don't see how you fix this unless you just completely get rid of it in which case, as I said before, you're trying to put the genie back in the bottle, and that's not going to work. So, And people are going to get better at it. The, the referees are going to get better at it. The technology is going to improve. The way you watch the game is going to change, and we've talked about this before. The EPL fans that whose heads are exploding now, and the pundits out there whose heads are exploding now because of what their game has become— they're going to adapt. They're going to evolve. They're going to figure it out. And there'll be a whole generation now that went to their first game the other day or watched their first EPL game. And now VAR is part of their is part of their sports landscape. It is part of their experience when it comes to the Premier League. And you can cry and whine about what it's not and how it hasn't lived up to the past. And where is my beautiful game gone? Well, you know what? Your beautiful game looks different right now. And you will grow with it and evolve with it. And then ultimately, like all of us, you will die. All right. And there'll be a whole nother generation that has no comprehension of what the game looked like for you because it's based on what their generation has grown up with. I don't know. Masi, anything else? Well, although I will tag this conversation by saying some of the complaints this weekend resonated because, as I said, IFAB is going to take a look at this and there's some uh, sentiment that they're going to tweak the wording to make it the offside has to be clear and obvious, which, as you point out, is going to open up a whole other can of worms. But nevertheless, they're not buying in necessarily to this whole black and white nature of offside. So we'll have to keep an eye on that story because we might be (laughs) there are going to be more more chapters to this moving forward. And then we'll we'll end on this. The Bundesliga campaign gets underway on Friday with uh, Bayern Munich hosting Hertha Berlin. Uh, we have coverage on Fox all weekend long, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so stay tuned for that. It's funny because we, we live in such a Premier League world that once the Premier League window closes, there's this sense of like, okay, the transfer market's over, now it's all about the games. Well, it's still open for like another three weeks in all the other leagues, and some pretty big names could, could still move. And so if when we talk about any of these other leagues, it has to be with the caveat that there could still be transfers that, that alter what we're about to say. And it's particularly relevant with Dortmund and Bayern. I think Dortmund are done with whatever moves they're going to make, for better or for worse, this is their team. But Bayern just today signed Ivan Perisic, and they've been linked with Coutinho. So... 
who knows? There could be still some big Bayern moves to be made here. Perisic is is a decent signing. It's a consolation prize. They had put all their eggs in the Leroy Sané basket for the last few months, and then they don't get him. He gets injured, and so they go for Perisic instead, a guy who played in the Bundesliga before with Dortmund and Wolfsburg, and they got him for a decent price. But that move is not enough to fundamentally change what I said last week, and I'll stick with it here. If Bayern do not make another move with both teams as presently constituted, I think Dortmund have a better squad, and I think they win the Bundesliga this season. Is that just wishful thinking on my part? Yes, it is wishful thinking on your part, Mossy. Um, it, <laughs> we talked about how uh, our, our good friend and colleague, uh, Jovan Karowski, has once again picked uh, Borussia Dortmund. And uh, I saw him up in, uh, in D.C. and we were laughing about it. But, and look, this is, a, this is a good pick. I think this is going to continue the way it, it, it continued last year. And they're going to go back and forth and back and forth. And there will be crises here and there and players in and out and stuff like that. I do think that Dortmund, the way that they look right now, they look like a better team. They look like a better team than Bayern. I think they have more depth. I think they have a better starting 11 and a team that is hungry to rectify the wrong that they, they feel happened last year. But, you know, it's... I, and I don't think the Perisic thing is enough for Bayern right now. And so I think that if they don't do anything else uh, this summer, I think they'll have to do something in the, uh, in the January transfer window, and it'll be a race to the end once again. So I don't think you're crazy uh, or that Jovan's crazy for picking Dortmund. I just think that Bayern finds a way. And maybe this will be the time when they go to the cupboard and it's bare. But... I, I have a, I still have a hard time picking against uh, picking against Bayern. Yeah, Bayern have done this interesting dance. When the market blew up the last couple of years, and teams like PSG started spending the money that they did, uh, Bayern kind of looked down on them and took a lot of pot shots at the English clubs and PSG and Barcelona and Real Madrid and said, well, we're never going to go that route and and get in the mud with those clubs and it's ridiculous to spend that kind of money on players. And then last season was a bit of a wake-up call. They went out meekly in the Champions League in the round of 16 to Liverpool, and they trailed Dortmund for much of the Bundesliga campaign. And so they started to sing a different tune at the end of the season. Uli Huna said, we're going to spend like never before. And they went out. They had already signed Pavard in January, but that move, getting it from Stuttgart for the money they did, kind of fit their old way of doing things. The move that really got people's attention was when they paid the buyout clause for Lucas Hernandez, 80 million euros. And that made you think, okay, wow, yeah, this is going to be a different buy-in. They're going to be major players in the transfer market here. And they actually hadn't done anything since then until this move for Perisic today, which had even their own players wondering, wait, what's going on? We were promised all these big moves. And then Rummenigge's had to come out recently and bring back that old narrative of like, well, we, we can't spend all this crazy money. And he, he, he criticized the, the contract that Barcelona gave Griezmann and we're, we're not going to go that route and spend that kind of money on players. And so Bayern have to figure out kind of what they, what they want to be here. Do they want to sort of claim the moral high ground and, and not spend money on, on players uh, to me, the reality of that is then you're not going to be able to, you might be able to win Bundesliga titles. You're not going to win any Champions League titles because better for better or for worse, that's the direction the game's gone. And if you want the top players in the world, you're going to have to spend big money to get them. And so, you know, are they going to sort of buy into that? And and I guess the fact that they were pursuing Leroy Sané, a player that would have cost over 100 million euros, kind of tells you that, you know, if they can get that caliber of player, they're going to get him. But then once they don't get him, they sort of fall back on this other narrative that, well, we're not going to spend crazy money. So I don't know, Bayern have to kind of figure out what they 
they want to be uh, in this in this world we live in now. But as for Dortmund, I thought they got off to a great start this summer, you know, turning that Pulisic money into Thorgan Hazard, Julian Brandt, and Nico Schultz. I actually don't like the Hummel signing that much. When I first read that they signed him, I thought, you know what, for the right price uh, to be kind of a third center back in the rotation with Diallo and Akanji, a good veteran in the dressing room. But then they, they turned around and they sold uh, Diallo to PSG for, for less money than they spent on Hummels. So it's like, wow, are they thinking that Mats Hummels in the year 2019 is going to be this mega signing that's going to come in and anchor their back line week in, week out? That, to me, I think he's kind of past that point in his career. So uh, I, I have some questions there, but I like that team everywhere else. Obviously, Sancho, Royce, uh, the new players they have coming in, Alcacer. So, yeah, I'm, I'm like I said, if nothing else, if no other moves are made here and Bayern don't make a big signing of consequence in the next three weeks, I'm, I'm picking Dortmund to win the title, which, listen— Dortmund are not Leicester. I mean, they're the second biggest club in Germany. They're one of the top 15 revenue right. producers in all of Europe. But still, it, 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 so it, it, Dortmund winning the title isn't exactly this massive blow for parity, but it's a step in the right direction if it happens after Bayern have won seven in a row. You were kind of wondering of that troika of Bayern, PSG, and Juventus who dominate their leagues to such a degree, which one of those three might be the most susceptible, vulnerable to having their sort of domination? And, and I think it's clearly emerged as, as Bayern. I, I don't see any way that Juve and PSG don't win their respective leagues. As, as we just talked about, even though you might still be picking Bayern, you think it's entirely plausible that Dortmund win it. So we've at least reached that point in the Bundesliga, which I don't think we have with those other two leagues. So that, that is a step in the right direction. The best thing that could happen is is for Dortmund to win the league because, as you mentioned, you know Bayern, you know while they're not necessarily competing, even though you expect them to, but nobody's picking Bayern uh, for for Champions League. And so, if they bomb out in Champions League, they could also they they, they could always lay their you know put uh, lay their hat on winning the Bundesliga. But if they don't have that and Dortmund comes through, then it's going to light a fire. And you, you kind of need that fire lit because they just squeaked through last year and they said, yeah, but we won the league. And so unless unless they were to go and win Champions League and, and Dortmund, won, uh, Dortmund won the league. But I, I would love to see that fire lit by Dortmund. Uh, and that's, that's going to be the story going, going forward. There's plenty of stories that we'll be following on Bundesliga, but obviously... Dortmund versus Bayern is going to be a major one, as will the American players uh, uh, that are playing and that continue to play in uh, in Germany. We, we talked earlier about the focus uh, from a broadcast perspective on Christian Pulisic over the EPL. Well, you know, we're we're going to do our job and we're going to make sure that we uh, that we're talking about. Uh, the American players that are playing over there from a national team perspective, it's important. And just the fact that they have American players and so many American players and a lot of young players that are given opportunities over there, that's going to be certainly something that we're going to talk about going forward. Well, so you've got McKinney, Adams, Sargent, uh, Zach Steffen, who joined Dusseldorf on loan from Manchester City. Is there one in particular there that you really have your eye on this season that you're, you're very curious to see how, how he plays? Look, I mean, I think we've talked about Josh Sargent and just the pleading and the <laughs> the desire that we have for him to play and to play consistently because of how it relates to a potential goal scorer for the national team that isn't named Josie Altador or Jossie Zardes. I think we're a long way away still, but it's the beginning of a season, and so the hope is the hope is there uh, going forward. You mentioned Zach Steffen. This is the starting goalkeeper for the national team. This is a guy who went to Europe, came back from Europe, is now back in Europe. Obviously, you uh, that uh, that loan. I'll be really interested to see 
how he fares because this isn't just some young, inexperienced type of player. I think this is a player, especially now with the pedigree uh, and the CV of, uh, of Manchester City, that is expected to come in to play and even, dare I say it, to star. And I'll be interested to see if he lives up to that type of ability. And for, you know, from a managerial standpoint, you have David Wagner taking over at Schalke, which that's going to be interesting. I mean, Wagner is a guy that some people think is a, down the road a potential U.S. Uh, national team coach. I know you played with him. Uh, any sense uh, of how you think Wagner might do in the Bundesliga with Schalke? I think if he hadn't played for the U.S. national team, I don't think anybody would be talking about him and being on the radar. And and look, this is, uh, yeah, I, I played with him and he's done he's done great. And that connection is the only reason why people are talking about him potentially uh, down the line. And maybe that's enough. I think he is going to be on the list of a lot of people. And but as I said, from an American national team perspective, if he wasn't, I don't think anybody would be talking uh, talking about him. And that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be talked about. And as I said, I, that might not even mean that that's that's not enough that type of connection and maybe that connection is what ultimately gets him to say yes if if we ever get if we ever get to that point but I think he will always be in that conversation because of the quality he has the resume now that he has in multiple countries and the uh, success that he has had or is going to have going forward. Yeah, and the other big coaching story doesn't it's not an American, but is Nagelsmann at Leipzig. We waited all year for this, and now it's finally he's finally there, and he'll be coaching Tyler Adams once Tyler Adams gets healthy, by the way. But you know, if if you're gonna we talked about Dortmund and Bayern, if you're gonna have another team emerge, perhaps it would be Leipzig or Leverkusen. Leipzig with Nagelsmann going in, or they held on to Werner, Upamecano, Forsberg. You've got Tyler Adams for a full season. Some other good young players are brought on Cuckoo from from PSG. And then Leverkusen, who now have Peter Bosch for a full season. They lost Julian Brandt, but they held on to Kai Havertz, Leon Bailey, and everybody else. They brought in Demerbay from Hoffenheim. So, you know, they have a good team. So those would be kind of if, if – I don't think it's going to happen, but if, 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 if somebody else emerged to make it not a two-team race for the title, I think you're looking at either Le- Leipzig and Leverkusen. But, yeah, we'll, we'll be obviously talking about the Bundesliga all season long and, and certainly through the lens of the Americans, but also following this uh, what I think will be a great – title race between uh, Dortmund and Bayern. It kicks off, season kicks off this Friday. Can't wait. Can't wait. It's going to be fun. Uh, Mossy, anything else? No, I mean, uh, let me just get this story quickly in here. Last week, we talked about Pep, Klopp, and Pochettino, and I made this whole big point about how I think Pochettino's getting ready to leave Tottenham because he's very frustrated with their transfer inactivity, and as soon as I, after we finished taping, I went to a restaurant to have lunch, and I looked down on my phone, and I saw that Tottenham had signed Paulo Dybala for 70 million euros, and I started furiously texting Alex Dowd, our producer, who was actually in the middle of a big staff meeting. God knows what was being discussed in there. But we sort of went back and forth and we're freaking out. Oh, that's going to sound ridiculous by the time the podcast drops if they sign Paulo Dybala. And so Alex had to like get creative and figure out how to wait to a way to edit around that and, and take that whole part out of the podcast. And lo and behold, the Dybala story like blew up in a few hours. And like by the next day, it was like they're not going to get him. And that was just sort of like a cautionary tale of how you, you can't let the transfer market drive you crazy. And so I actually have a couple of like Mossy makes the case transfer related sort of big picture thoughts on this summer kind of in the can ready to go. But I've decided I'm going to hold off on those until the end of this month because, you know, they could become outdated in a few hours or you never know what's going to happen. So uh, that was just like our 
funny little story from last week. Alex and I, I mean, you should have seen these texts back and forth, us freaking out about this Dybala thing, and it doesn't even happen. So we'll revisit the transfer market at the end when the dust settles and we know where Neymar is, where Dybala is, where Coutinho is, where Gareth Bale ends up, and all these other big-name players. Uh, well, you're a good writer, Mossy. So good writers always keep uh, keep some of the powder dry and, and have something uh, in storage. And you know, we I'm not necessarily a good writer like you, but I I all I have plenty of State of the Unions that uh, that either I have written and even sent multiple ones to you guys, and we kind of pick whatever one, or we or we judge something here or something like that. So we all have those waiting. So I, I look forward to seeing them uh, dusted off and maybe edited here or there in order to fit the times going forward. But like you said, interesting times. Interesting times we live in on and off the field, uh, which brings us to the end of yet another podcast. This has been a longer podcast uh, than in the past, so hopefully you're taking a longer run or maybe you're sitting in some uh, some more traffic. So I'll make my one big thing from today's podcast short and sweet, and that is to say uh, this. Congratulations to Kate Margraff. She was just named the U.S. Women's National Team General Manager, the first one in history, the U.S. Women's National Team World Cup champion U.S. Women's National Team general manager, the first one, as I said, in history. Uh, She has her hands full. Her first order of business is to go out and hire a brand new coach for our U.S. Women's National Team. And big, big shoes to fill with the two-time World Cup winner Jill Ellis moving on at the end of the year. It'll be very interesting to see what she does in this new capacity. She is not only in charge of the U.S. Women's National Team, but also uh, the entire women's national team side of all the national teams out there. So all that vertical integration uh, that goes on. As I said, big shoes to fill in terms of who she picks and who that person is. I don't know, but somebody coming in is going to have to live up to a pretty good team. Uh, She will be judged like all national team uh, GMs are judged on, obviously, the success that happens on the field and the success of the team off the field and certainly the development uh, and the progress that is made. Sometimes it's hard to qualify it and quantify it, but that's part of the uh, part of the job. But I want to wish her all the best and congratulations at this newly created uh, position. And I will be uh, interested to see how the national team looks going forward into next year with the Olympics and on to that next World Cup under whoever this new coach is, he or she that will be brought in and under the eyes of Kate Margraff, the new national team uh, general manager. And I, just a caveat to all, to all of this, Ernie Stewart, who has been on the job, I don't know, a year or so as the men's national team GM, was elevated and appointed and promoted to a whole new position. So there's a whole new hierarchy that's being established right now when it comes to the competitive side of the, the national teams at, uh, at U.S. soccer, something to keep an eye on, as are all of the things that we, uh, that we talked about today. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. Mossy, anything to say before we leave? No, that's it. All right. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for sending your questions with the uh, hashtag Ask Alexi, reviewing and rating and subscribing and doing all the different things that you do. It uh, makes us so happy that we are able to do that each and every week for you and that uh, anybody's actually out there listening and watching. All right. We will see you again next week. As always, size the day. <laughs>